1: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Shout out to our super producers, Casey Pegram. The one and only Max Williams. And you know what? Shout out to everyone who is back to flying the friendly skies these days.
0: Yeah, I think you and I both took a couple of little jaunts recently. Um, I just got back from Los Angeles and it's not as scary as I maybe would have thought. Keeping that mask on the whole time, especially on an overnight flight, is a little weird. It's hard to sleep in one of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, uh, I, should, I should say that I went to
1: Philadelphia recently. It was a wonderful trip. Love the city. Uh, I'm Ben, you're Noel, and you, you and I once went to Philly together. Remember that?
0: We did do that thing, Ben. Uh, we did a show with our other podcast, Stuff They Don't Want You To Know, at the World Cafe, and it was awesome. It was awesome, and we
1: can't wait to get back on the road soon. Max, have have you hopped on a plane recently?
2: Not yet. I mean, I was planning to get out to uh, Portland. I had a buddy move out there right before the start of the pandemic, and I just love that city. So I was like, oh, man, I'll come see you. And then the pandemic's been going, and then I've been talking to him like, hey, I'm going to come out soon. He's like, well, I'm coming to Atlanta pretty soon anyways. I'm like, well...
0: (laughs) zero sum game
2: hey you, you come see me here in atlanta then i'll fly out to portland like i don't know with you and then we just hang out in portland i don't know
0: i think that's that sounds sounds nice plan. that's a good plan i have a question for you guys what is the longest you have gone after a flight where your ears didn't pop back you know what I mean? Like oh, uh, you have yeah. that thing where you get that muffled kind of like headphones with no music on kind of vibe. And mm-hmm. you kind of like you got this feeling in your jaw and you're like huh, uh, doing the yawn and trying to make them pop. I had a, I have a horror story about that, but I'd love, I'd love to get y'all's perspective. Uh, ben, uh, how about how about you? Let's see. It was a very long
1: flight. Either 13 or 14 hours, I want to say, maybe a little more. And it was several, it took several days for my ears to adjust. But also, as you could tell just from hearing how long I was in the in the sky that time, I had a lot going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I was like, we're just gonna deal with the ear thing later when we get back to regular life, if we make it.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I get I get where you're coming from. Max, how about you? Any uh, long term ear situations resulting from flights? Not that I can think of,
2: like, the longest flight I've ever taken was Seattle to um, Atlanta. See, I'm afraid of heists and I'm claustrophobic, so flights and I do not get along very well. Like, I'll try to avoid them at all costs, but I would probably say, like, only a couple hours afterwards Mm -hmm. and then it was gone, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like it would just go away immediately. It would just, like, slowly Slowly, go away. Well, you, sir, are one of the lucky ones.
1: What about you, Noel? What's, What's your
0: horror story? Well, it's, I don't know, it's a horror story, but it makes me think of today's story. Uh, This is why I bring it up. I once had a flight, it was like, I think, an East Coast, West Coast flight, where my ears didn't pop for the whole duration of my visit. And then I assumed, okay, surely on the return flight, having that change in altitude, you know, up and down again, will knock something loose and cause my ears to pop back to normal. But it didn't. And I went a whole week after the trip with my ears still feeling like they were full of like cotton balls. And like you said, Max, It really was kind of a gradual process, but for me, one that was barely perceptible because it was just like, oh my God, is this my life now? You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, today's story is sort of about the opposite, but I couldn't help but think the idea of taking flights to cure deafness um, around the early 1920s, where flights were still in some ways a novelty uh, and they were used for tricks and, you know, acrobatics and things like that at various fairs. And you had um, folks doing like all kinds of, you know, death defying stunts and this literally became a prescription for folks who were hard of hearing or even other maladies that we're going to get into today. Sure. Um, And I assume that it had something to do with this like change in altitude, but that's actually the least of of what is leaned on, at least in the kind of like conventional uh, wisdom behind all this stuff. It turns out it wasn't really a particularly good method, but it has more to do with like scaring the uh, condition out of you,
1: right? Right. So I want to step back because... We are talking a lot about the condition known as deafness today. And before we get into this attempt to, quote-unquote, cure deafness, we've got to acknowledge that when you're talking about understanding deafness, you have to understand that many people in the community don't want to be, quote-unquote, fixed. This is a pretty controversial issue, and part of it is because some people might look at those attempts, however well-intentioned, as something that is eroding or destroying their community. You can read an excellent article on this in The Atlantic by Allegra Ringo, Understanding Deafness, Not Everyone Wants to be Fixed. Highly recommended if you'd like to learn more about this. And so the context in which this occurs, as you say, early in the 1920s or so, or early 20th century, uh, the context here is important because different institutions and individuals in the U.S. had attempted to cure, cure or you could say assimilate deaf people. One example comes to us from Stephanie Ann Goldberg, writing for the thesmartset.com, where she describes what was called oralism. And this is what I mean by assimilation or cure, the line between those. On oralism, deaf people were forced to speak and lip read rather than to use sign language, like ASL, American Sign Language. So there there were also things like putting electricity in people's ears and, of course, more spiritual treatments like praying. But with the novelty of aircraft and the discovery of how air pressure changes can affect people's ears, someone decided to see whether or not there was a a way to give people the ability of hearing through exposing them to airplane trips. And it really all dates back to something called the Renz Jr. incident in 1921, right? That's right.
0: And uh, much of this research comes to us from a fantastic article in Smithsonian Magazine describing this uh, phenomenon of doctors prescribing death-defying flights to quote-unquote cure deafness. And that article was written by the incredibly talented Uh, Greg Doherty for smithsonianmag.com on September 26th of 2017. The event you're referring to, Ben, took place in March of 1921. There was an Army Air Service plane that uh, took off from a military base in Washington, D.C., in one of their airfields. And there were two men on board, uh, the pilot and a passenger, a gentleman by the name of Harry A. Renz Jr., who was 22 at the time. Renz was a veteran of World War I and had lost his ability to speak about eight months before this this flight took place. It's a little unclear in in the research and the history as to what caused it, if there was a particular injury that caused it, whether it was tied to some kind of other trauma that he experienced during the war, but it is most likely some sort of result uh, of his service. So the doctors had tried everything to kind of um, bring his speech back to him. That included some kind of dicey sounding surgeries like removing his adenoids and his tonsils seems like a pretty odd leap there don't you think ben yeah you get the feeling
1: that maybe they were increasingly moving toward a throwing spaghetti at the wall situation right. they wanted this guy it is very young guy to be able to regain the power of speech but they they weren't sure how to do it. And and after exhausting several options, Renz eventually meets a doctor named Charles H. McInerney at the U.S. Public Health Service. And this doctor says, you know what, Renz, I think your problem is psychological. And I'm going to do something a little different. You don't need to take pills or have any more surgeries. I want you to go on a plane. And then he explains this later to a newspaper reporter from the time Detailing the psychological aspect, he says, quote, when the patient feels himself being taken up to 12,000 or 14,000 feet or more, and then suddenly the machine does a nosedive or a loop the loop the sufferer from hysteria is most likely to forget his other troubles. (laughs) I selected the airplane for my work because it was the most convenient means at hand. The same thing might have been accomplished by tying the patient to a railroad track. Hardcore, Dr. Hardcore.
0: Whoa. So this is literally like, you know, let's terrify this condition out of you, right?
1: Yeah. Tough. He couldn't just like wait around a corner because that's what he's describing. I guess he he really wanted it to feel like a life-threatening situation. And you know what's odd? I don't know if we're going to keep this in, this episode. What's really odd is uh, last night, I ate some cheese right before I went to bed at a late hour, and I had this continual long dream of being in an out-of-control helicopter, huh. and I was flying, and I couldn't figure out how to fly the thing, and it was one of those dreams where do you ever wake up, and you fall back asleep, and you're still stuck in the same totally. dream? Totally as one of those so
0: i i'm feeling this it's also that classic dream scenario of like being unprepared like gosh i really should have taken you know helicopter pilot classes before <laughs> entering this vehicle that, that seems very terrifying and capable why of. did i
2: not bring a jet pa- like a uh parachute for this <laughs> exactly like, a or a jet I, pack
0: or like the
1: far side says uh you know the the fear of going to the lecture and being the only one without your duck do you guys remember that
0: clip or comic no but i get i think i get where it's going what is the duck meant to be like A some sort of safety blanket like what what is the, Or is that just dream logic i think it's dream logic It's <laughs> just it gary is, right? larson man i love you guys a yeah. genius but
1: yeah. but uh you're you're absolutely right like this does seem clearly a psychological approach
0: right i mean the guy even uses the h word which we talked about in past episodes <laughs> hysteria that's exactly right ben it probably should be reduced to the h word yes uh It certainly is a very loaded word, especially when it comes to uh, doctors of this era as well, treating women and using this as a term of abuse almost in terms of like, oh, she is all in her head. She was just hysterical, the idea of hysterical women. But it can be used for men too, apparently. (laughs) So uh, equal opportunity kind of gaslighters these doctors were. But, you know, it's really just kind of a more extreme example of uh, the idea of like scaring someone to get rid of the hiccups, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. That's I I think that's a really good comparison. And shout out to our own Frank Mulheran, who has this very weird trance-like hiccups cure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on a he was on our show earlier, was idiomatic for the people. Correct. Yes. Our, our four-part series on idioms. So check that out if you want to learn more. But God, what a good comparison, Noel. In Renz's case, this appears. To have some sort of efficacy because again, as Doherty points out in the Smithsonian, they're only up in the air for about an hour. And when they land, Renz is walking down the ramp. He's getting off the airplane. And his first words were I don't know whether
0: I can talk or not. <laughs> okay. I'm not laughing. This is obviously great, great it's news. It's okay to laugh.
1: It's good news. Yeah.
0: But but it's like what? I don't know what happened like okay so maybe this does point to the uh, lack of the, the loss of of, uh, of his speech the, the Mr. Renz's speech as being psychological uh, if, if uh, surgery didn't do the trick these weird irrelevant seeming surgeries didn't do the trick and then all of a sudden he was just spooked into speaking I guess and a big part of this too was that they wouldn't tell the passenger like you're in for some crazy you know aer- aerial acrobatics it was just gonna be you know you're gonna go for this flight that we're prescribing you but really really, as we've uh, indicated, the shock and awe of it all really was supposedly what, you know, turned something on or off in in the brain, Uh, and it would appear that it worked, and the newspapers ran with it.
1: Yeah, that's the thing. So, again, airplanes are nowhere near as common or uh, ubiquitous as they
0: are today, right? 20 years old, roughly, right? I mean, they still were, were starting to become more mainstream, but they were still somewhat of a fascination, and I do not believe we would have had the type of commercial airline situation that we would know today.
1: I mean, it's even, even newer than that. It was the first controlled, like the first powered airplane flights occurred December of 1903, December 17th, 1903. So this is less than 20 years old. Uh, what we're saying is like with a lot of new emergent technology, people weren't completely sure what it was capable of, you know? And this this could be easily misconstrued as a panacea. And all you need is one story that appears to indicate this works. And the, their sample size is necessarily so low. According to Jennifer Van Vleck, a curator of social and cultural history of aviation over at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, she calls it a technological Wild West Everybody was full of speculation and ideas about what airplanes could do, both to and for passengers.
0: Yeah, it's funny, Ben. There was a commercial flight that took place in 1914, but it was very much like a historical situation. It was the world's first scheduled passenger airline flight that took off between St. Petersburg and Tampa, Florida and it was considered kind of like a flash in the pan. The St. Petersburg, Tampa airboat line, what was called, uh, was considered, it only lasted for four months, but it would have kind of paved the way for what we would know today as uh, commercial airlines. But around 1920, that, I think there were some outside of the U.S., but certainly not to the degree that we see today. But you're right, Ben, about uh, Jennifer Van Vleck's comment that this would have been the technological Wild West. Also, you know, clearly the psychological and medical Wild West. So all those things kind of coalesced together to to breed this weird kind of uh, meeting of two, uh, three rather disciplines. And when this started to hit the wires, uh, it was an absolute sensation um, because, you know, this was a burgeoning new industry. And hey, if we have another reason for people to get excited about taking flights, we should go for it. Flying Magazine really Put out the call to look into this uh, as having, quote, serious therapeutic value. The quote from the magazine is, uh, even from the meager details now available, it seems conclusive that the future in this field holds tremendous possibilities. May we not predict that the aerial sanatorium oof, uh, and the aerotherapist will yet have their day? Uh yeah,
1: you see why they phrase that as a question. Mm-hmm. The answer we'll find out is that, yes, you can predict whatever you wish. In this case, your prediction will be incorrect. But let's put ourselves back in this time period, in the 1920s. Let's say you're someone who has your own speech impediment, right? Um, perhaps a stutter, just just for an example. And you think, well, this might, if this could help somebody who was mute – if this could help them regain the power of speech, perhaps it will help me with my own condition. Mm-hmm. And so other patients started, it started with other people who had speech impediments. They started going on airplanes uh, in the hopes that it would ameliorate their condition. But then some people who had hearing problems, uh, who were maybe hard of hearing or had some other specific condition, they started noticing this treatment too. And French doctors even got involved. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite
0: car?
1: Right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant.
0: I meant <laughs> I said El Camino and I meant Monte Carlo.
1: I miss it so. Uh the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally, but it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back
0: now, That's right. This was not confined to just the United States. The word got out, and French doctors uh, were noticing that— pass- this, Again, this is like, you know, it's one of those things where you can say something happens in this situation. Therefore, they must be related. Uh, it can show kind of the coincidental connection of these two events, but not necessarily causation. And in this case, that ended up being exactly what it was. French doctors noticing that passengers on long airline flights would fall asleep, and and therefore— They thought maybe air travel might be a treatment for insomnia, Uh, and that was reported um, in the Paris news. So very long leaps of of judgment being made—you know, noticing something uh, working in one situation and therefore, like it might as well must be some sort of magical cure all. Uh, Mm -hmm. So they they started to develop a reputation. They actually had a name, um, even though they were being used to treat. Other ailments, uh, they were referred to as death flights to the point where certain stunt pilots, I guess, um, who, who, who were trying to get in on the action, um, they would hire themselves out for certain events and they started to add death flights to that list of uh, things that they would do.
1: Yeah, now you're not just watching aerial daredevils for fun, you're also watching them for a good cause. At least you can you can see how the marketing works there. A lot of this comes from the work of Dr. Jaipreet Verdi, a medical historian who runs a great website called fromthehandsofquacks.com. And in their research on this, Dr. Verdi talks about the specific stunts these pilots would perform. The pilots would ride to 10,000 feet they would dive suddenly. They would even have people jump out of the plane in parachutes. And this was often not, this is important to know. It was often not the pilots going, Yeah, I don't know. Maybe do like a little corkscrew and then tell me, tell me uh how you, you know, if you feel like you can talk yet. No, these were recommended by ear specialists of the day because they knew that change in your air pressure can affect ears, but they Just like the French doctors, I think what you're really talking about there, Noel, is correlation versus causation. One does not necessarily create the other. And so they didn't have a lot of data or information that could support this idea of aircraft restoring hearing or even demonstrating any measurable improvement. Like if you did a hearing test before the flight and you did it after the flight, you really wouldn't find much there, or they hadn't yet to be completely fair, but that didn't that didn't stop the news and the media of the time from saying, "You know, "Hey, go look out over the sky of your fair metropolis. There's a death flight scheduled for Saturday, or something like that." What we see instead from contemporary media is a little bit of cherry picking, like desperately searching for a story that shows this."
0: appearing to work. Yeah, there there's a few. I mean, there are a few anecdotal. We, we've already heard about the you know the the initial case um, with the uh, the World War One vet who said, "I don't know if I can talk or not," which seems like he absolutely could talk because he said those words. But there are several other examples that the press picked up on, and the way they're covered really does indicate that this is like proof positive. That this is definitely a excellent method and, and a way of of treating all of these things. So in ni- September of 1922, you had a U.S. report stating that a, quote, hopelessly deaf former soldier named Augustus S. Harris had gotten his hearing back after a pilot took him up to 15,000 feet over the city of Chicago. The Chicago Tribune reported that he had been unable to hear something as, you know, relatively loud, if you put it right up to your ear, as the ticking of a watch. If you stick it right in there, it's kind of hard to miss. But after the flight, he was able to have a phone conversation with his mother, where he was able to seemingly hear just fine. Very close following on this story, um, we had a Lutheran minister in San Francisco telling reporters that he had had his hearing completely restored after a flight took him up to 13,000 feet. On his doctor's recommendation, plans to take three more flights. And uh, it's uh, it wasn't even limited to humans. There were some cases of animals being, you know, miraculously cured by these uh, these death flights. Yeah.
1: One story that BuzzFeed would have loved to cover if it existed at the time is the story of a doctor who sent his deaf seven month old collie puppy up into the sky. And we don't know what how the dog afterwards. But the owner said, quote, the dog appeared to hear much better after his exciting trip. And this wasn't some fringe reporting. This was the Associated Press. This this got so much press that celebrities of the day started to enter into the conversation, most notably, perhaps the famous airman himself, Charles Lindbergh. He hadn't he hadn't made his name quite yet as one of the age's most
0: famous pilots but right. he was in the mix. And what was the deal the Lindbergh baby? That was a big uh, kerfuffle. Uh, I believe he he had was kidnapped. Their child was kidnapped, isn't that right?
1: Yeah. That was going that was going to happen about 10 years later. The 20-month-old son of Charles Lindbergh was kidnapped in March of that year and I think That's right. is Perry Mason based on that? The Perry Mason reboot? No, that's just another that's another child kidnapping. But Correct. do watch Perry Mason if you get a chance. It's very well done.
0: It is good. It's a super uh, well-crafted like noir in the set building and world building of it is fantastic. But Lindbergh, you know, you're right. He went on to become this, probably one of the most famous aviators uh, in American history. But at the time, he was just kind of trying to make his way by, like like we were saying earlier, doing these kind of um, events, I guess, or, or like, uh, you know, fairs and carnivals. And he had business cards that said, quote, fair and carnival exhibition work offering plane change in midair exactly what it sounds like, literally hopping from one plane to another. Wing walking, also what it sounds like. Parachute jumping, breakaways, which is where I believe you'd have like a ladder or some sort of rope hanging from the bottom of a plane and you'd climb out of the cockpit. Remember, these are like open cockpit planes and climb down and, and, and uh, you know, I guess have a co-pilot piloting while you dangled there. Um, something called night fireworks, which I imagine is what it sounds like. Smoke trails and death flights. I wonder if he penciled that in at the end because it was such a new phenomenon, right? Perhaps, yeah. Or maybe
1: it's the it's got the honor of being the last thing with the and because that is one, that's one thing he really wants to stay with people when they read the card. But yeah, these are impressive and in some cases incredibly dangerous stunts. A biographer of Lindbergh uh, named A. Scott Berg has done some deep digging on this and looked into Lindbergh's correspondence and he found in a letter to Lindbergh's mother, the aviator describes the ins and outs of a a deaf flight. He has one client who's been hard of hearing or partially deaf for about three decades. And he says the following, I took him up 7,400 feet he thinks thirteen thousand feet, and brought him down in a twenty-eight turn spin. He was sure sick and couldn't hear as well as before. But the next day, his hearing was noticeably improved. What's interesting about this is it already seems pretty unscrupulous, right? Because Lindbergh's admitting to lying. To this I was guy. about
0: to ask. Yeah, why? So he's saying the doctor prescribed thirteen thousand feet, and he only took him to seventy-four hundred feet. Why would he do that? And why? Why the yeah, why the discrepancy? It's very, very unusual. Because most of these, uh, quote-unquote, prescriptions that we're hearing uh, and a lot of these uh, t- these tellings from these pilots usually involve going up to, you know, double digits at the very least.
1: Yeah, and as we look into the nuts and bolts of these flights, what we see is it's almost like a roller coaster is therapy. Like you could mm-hmm. have sent somebody to an amusement park and they were capitalizing on the fascination with and fear of this new technology these flights were almost like roller coasters would be one good example a haunted house would be another good example you were supposed to be freaking terrified the entire time right spins nosedives they're they're doing loops you know i if they're really trying to scare people they could do the uh one thing that happened to me which i still don't know i don't know whether this was a prank Or whether this was just an accidental hot mic situation. One time I was on a flight where I was going to Central America. There was a sudden dip as we're flying in. And the pilot gets on the mic and is like, you know, you know the everybody knows the stereotypical pilot voice. You know, it's like a little bit of turbulence. Flying in winds to the northwest. Uh, <laughs> the
0: Why do they belts. all sound the same? Do they take a class? Is it, is it part of their training to like talk as as like innocuously as possible? Is like wait, wait for it to, Here's what
1: happens. He goes uh, cross check, unclear. All right, should have you down in about twenty five minutes. Uh oh. And then he says, "Uh oh," and yeah. he just leaves it off. The yeah. flight went fine, mm-hmm. by the way. It was just a little turbulence, which is not uncommon. And I, I don't know why, like what happened in the cockpit that made him sign off
0: with "uh oh." <laughs> but I still think about that guy. Oh, you, you. Oh my God, yeah, that would not. <laughs> uh, that for certain people that have like phobias about flying, like what, what's the oh, what? <laughs> like I would like I would have gotten out of my seat and like you know like asked for for some uh, assurances, but you know, like we said, these results were, we, we, we have several examples of miraculous cures. We've got Wrens. We've got the two cases we talked about. We've even got the Collie, um, which by the way, the Collie was the grandson of Calvin Coolidge's White House Collie, uh, according to this article in the Smithsonian Mag. Uh, I thought that was a, a fun little detail, completely irrelevant to the case, but, um, but worth noting, I suppose. So we start to see that this is, Probably not the mystical cure-all that it's being uh, made out to be relatively quickly. I mean, it it was a very short-lived kind of, like, fad, I guess, this whole thing. So I I imagine people started kind of realizing, A, it was very expensive. Lindbergh would get 50 bucks for one of those flights, which uh, inflation calculators to $700. Seven hundred uh, American dollars, and which is you know no small change, uh, sure. for for someone just trying a shot in the dark, you know. But I guess if there's hope, then probably worth it. But it starts to feel a little bit huckstery, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, This it's something that it's similar to what we've run into with episodes on faith healing. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was doing when I was working on that for stuff, then what you know, one of the things that we found is that people can at times feel temporarily healed or cured because they are in an environment that makes them perhaps feel peer pressure, perhaps unconsciously nudges them to truly believe that something has changed when it has not. And then later, you know, after the rush of not dying in a plane crash wears off, a lot of people found that their conditions had not noticeably changed, and other papers started reporting on this. The magazine Variety told a story anecdotal about an acrobat who claimed he had regained his hearing after a flight, but then a little bit later, he lost it again because a car near him backfired. In the case of Renz, who was unable to speak and then was able to speak after the plane flight, this improvement Appears to have only lasted about four days. And six weeks later, he goes to more and more specialists and he decides that he's going to try this flight treatment, this aerotherapy, one more time. And now we know that the second time, it also appears, he also appears to have been able to speak afterwards, but there's no record of how long this lasted. So hopefully it lasted for the rest of his life. But the
0: truth is, we just do not know. We don't know that. But what we do know is that this relatively short-lived fad did have a pretty definitive end point, and it was as a result of some tragic events that took place. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com.
2: I won! Yahoo!
1: So, the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite
0: car? In April of 1928, a professional pianist in his mid-40s who was concerned that he was losing his hearing. It's obviously a very important thing to have if you're a musician, you know, whether a singer. Like, you can't really—it's hard to have a pitch, you know, if you can't hear. Obviously, we know that Beethoven made a pretty good go of it, but it's certainly not optimum if that's, like, what you're doing and you're a teacher or a composer. So um, this individual uh, decided to go for a round of aerotherapy and unfortunately was killed in Eureka, California when the plane that he hired did one of those super severe nosedives and it caused one of the wings to collapse. And, and I just um, want to make sure everyone remembers that a lot of the planes that were being used in these types of, you know, kind of flying circus type events or these like stunt routines in the 1920s would have been the kind of planes that you think of when you think of like the Red Baron and like Charlie Brown, kind of these like biplanes, I guess you'd call them with the stacked wings, you know, and oftentimes they were made with, you know, kind of like almost, they were, you know, had a foundation, I assume that was made of steel uh, or metal of some kind, and all of these wires, these kind of tension wires that were keeping the, the stress evenly distributed. And I think sometimes the wings were even covered with like a, almost like a tent type material, like a, not burlap, but some sort of like heavy fabric like that. And so I can imagine that, you know, these were very, very dangerous maneuvers. And in fact, there's an article I found on history.net Called "Flying and Dying for Hollywood" in the 1920s, all about these uh, intrepid, you know, stunt pilots that were referred to as barnstormers, and how many of them lost their lives. Uh, it was a very, very, very dangerous business.
1: Yeah, for a specific example, one of the most notable planes of this era would have been the Spirit of St. Louis which is one of the most famous planes Charles Lindbergh flew it was a Ryan M2 and they they look like how you described Noel, they're, they're like a fixed monoplane the Spirit of St. Louis was mainly notable for its pilot and the extra fuel tanks that took up most of most of the cabin but yeah you're right in in plane safety And aviation technology has advanced so quickly since 1920. And again, we have to remember during these stories that we're looking at an industry and a technology that is still in a very real way in its infancy. And uh, another tragedy occurs. You can read about uh, an airplane accident involving a six-year-old boy who was hearing impaired. This bad press, these tragedies coupled with the lack of real significant quantitative proof of efficacy they contribute to the decline of the fad various organizations and experts are starting to look more closely into the treatment and they're saying hey airplane rides may be fun but you shouldn't you shouldn't assume there's any science behind the claim that they can cure you know, all these different conditions. As a matter of fact, the Journal of the American Medical Association called it, quote, usually
0: futile and often fatal. It's not a glowing review. No, it wasn't a glowing review at all. And there were even situations, I believe there was a case where a gentleman had a stutter uh, of some kind and, and other speech impediments that we talked about where it actually caused his stutter to worsen. You know, mm. so so it turns out that sometimes, if you have a psychological psychologically driven condition, that scaring the absolute crap out of you and putting you in a uh, life-threatening, traumatic situation might actually make things worse mm-hmm. exactly. And
1: this leads the overall press to become increasingly skeptical, as you said. And then also, stunt pilots have found, other ways to make a little cash, right? Especially when the post office starts using private contractors to carry air mail. And that used to once upon a time be something only the military could do. So now, now people aren't trying to make a buck off this pretty unscrupulous practice, but still people were, people were still trying it for a while because there were, there were people who had children that were hard of hearing or hearing impaired, and they wanted those children to hear. And, you know, if your child is suffering from something or if you feel that they are suffering from something, then there's nothing you wouldn't do to help your own kid. So that that kind of explains why these continued despite the lack of scientific evidence.
0: That's true. But even the deaf community, or at least, you know, one of the Primary journals or publications surrounding them, the Deaf Mute Journal really took issue with this pretty you know iffy and dangerous method of potentially, quote, unquote, curing their children of, of deafness. And they wrote, uh, or the publishers of, of the Deaf Mutes Journal wrote that the parents are, uh, quote, more to blame than their deaf children. And if any catastrophe results from stunt flying, the responsibility is largely theirs. We also saw just a general turn from the press. You know, uh, there's a really great line, I believe, in the Smithsonian MAG article that we cited earlier, uh, calling some of the, the journalism around it, like, ah shucks or like G. whiz kind of headlines you know the idea of like this novel new thing that's uh, taking the world by storm you know uh, and just as quickly that crowd can turn on you and, and they certainly did and they became much much more skeptical and and then looking more at the science or lack thereof uh, to back any of this up and we're printing uh, for example in a column uh, from the 1930s called how's your health The New York Academy of Medicine wrote that uh, an experiment uh, that took place in Newark, New Jersey, uh, involving six adults uh, chosen from 60, uh, like a a cohort of 60, that four of them, two men and two women, had had deafness, um, while the other had a middle ear disease, and the sixth uh, subject was a man who stuttered. Um, The column reported that after the flight, as as I mentioned before, the uh, gentleman who stuttered his stutter had worsened as had the middle ear case, which makes sense considering what we talked about at the top of the show, because a middle ear issue um, that could certainly be exacerbated by what, uh, you know, the whole like, you know, changing in fluid um, distribution in your ears that happens when you go up to, you know, 20,000 feet or 30,000 feet. Oh, I've got an answer for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Save it till the end.
1: Yep. But yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is all, all true. It's all adding up. It becomes, after a point, inarguable. Oh, the the, the deaf person showed zero improvement, by the way. Right, right, exactly. And so, eventually, these reports cause a person named Lieutenant Colonel Levy M. Hathaway, the chief medical officer of the Army Air Corps at the time, to ask a question that I feel like many of us have been wondering throughout the course of this episode, I certainly have, how could flying be beneficial for hearing impairment when flying in general is very bad for your hearing at this time over mm-hmm. a long, you know over a long period of exposure? The noises are crazy. you're changing altitude and therefore atmospheric pressure pretty often if you do this at, at certain extreme thresholds, this can burst your eardrums, and there's no like not only is there no scientific basis for the idea that an airplane flight can cure hearing impairments or uh, speech impediments. But in the case of hearing, the opposite is true Uh, in an airplane, especially like imagine you're in an open cockpit airplane and that's your job. You're a pilot. The ear protection technology at the time is not super advanced over time. It would be like being a drummer in a rock band, Right in the 60s or 70s, eventually the odds are stacked against you in terms of keeping your hearing in top shape.
0: Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) I mean, it's pretty much what we indicated just from our own uh, anecdotal uh, experiences with going up and down in airplanes. It certainly can cause problems. Uh, And and I'd love to I can't wait to hear um, your explanation for that weird inner ear phenomenon that we experience when our ears pop or don't pop or maybe never pop again. Uh, God forbid. But let's not forget about our buddy Charles Lindbergh. You know, after his time as a kind of like almost like a flying circus performer and aerial stunt pilot, he went on to make a legendary flight, long distance flight between New York and Paris, uh, May of 1927. So he, he was kind of done with all of that uh, stuff he did in his previous life. So there were definitely going to be no more death flights for him uh, in addition to, you know, the whole, what was it, uh, dangling from a rope underneath the plane. That sounded like absolute nightmare fuel, but he became uh, an, an absolute national hero. Mental Floss uh, has a really great article if you're interested in uh, about Charles Lindbergh and his life and some fascinating facts that you might not know about him, um, written by Jake Rawson. And one of those facts is this: the the thing that we alluded to at the top of the show. His infant son was kidnapped in 1932, and that case remains one of the uh, most kind of head scratching unsolved true crime stories of the uh, the early 20th century.
1: Yeah, and here ends the tale of plane flights to cure these conditions. Luckily, we know that there aren't unscrupulous pilots out there promising to cure things they can't cure these days. But if you were like many of the other millions of people getting back on the road, traveling for work, traveling to see family or just taking a vacation, then you are going to run into an ear pop situation. And a lot of people know the regular cures for this The idea that you need to talk or yawn or chew gum, things that move your jaw to pop your eustachian tube, that's legit. Uh, Sucking on candy could also work or, you know, drinking something, the act of swallowing. Other people will say you can try a nasal decongestant to offset swelling that might occur, but then there's the one I always thought was so risky. I, I knew this for years. I didn't know the name of it. Have you guys heard of the Valsalva Maneuver? No. Tell us about it, Ben. It's, it sounds like a post-rock band, but it's it's where you, you pinch your nose shut and then you suck at your cheeks. And while your cheeks are still sucked
0: in, you blow air out. Mm-hmm. I tried that, Ben. <laughs> I tried that. I tried them all. Uh, how about jamming Q-tips in your ear holes? Not good, right? Definitely avoid those. Oh, things, huh?
1: the, the official... The official q tip stance is those things don't go in the ear hole at all. But
0: <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I definitely did that. Uh, what is it, Ben? The Eustalsis the method, v- Valsalva maneuver. Uh, I don't know. I just made up a word, Eustalsis. That's what I'm going to call it from now on. Um, no, I definitely did that. I was desperate and it didn't work. I, I could kind of, you know, what it would do that was maddening, Ben? It would pop back for a second and then return. Back to its uh, muffled um, nightmarishness. Uh, It really was, I was concerned, like, uh, did I do permanent damage to my hearing? This is a time where both of us were taking regular flights uh, quite a few times a month. Um, Mm -hmm. To your point, I think all that going up and down and up and down really can do a number on you i'm surprised that there's not more information about like how just taking commercial flights i mean i know they pressurize the cabin it's certainly different than being open you know in you know in the cockpit like you would in these uh these stunt flying days but it still can't be amazing for you
1: yeah and that's the thing it's not so much the maximum altitude it's it's how much your altitude varies across I don't know why I'm doing miming these <laughs> gesticulations for you guys. There's an audio podcast, but it's, it's how often it changes. You get it, Max. It's how often your altitude changes in the course of the flight. With that, we hope you enjoyed today's show. We'd love to hear your tales of ear-popping flights. Uh, go ahead and drop us a line on Ridiculous Historians, which is our Facebook page. Thanks, as always, to Max Williams. Uh, thanks, as always, to... Let's see. Let's put Jonathan Strickland in the front this time.
0: I wonder, you know, he flies a lot. He does. He also just had a birthday, and I commented on this Instagram post, and a, an intrepid listener accused our rivalry of being fake. And let me tell you, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with a little cordiality, even among the most bitter rivals. Yeah. So, uh, it's like the rules of engagement in warfare. You know, you got to have some kind of, this is what separates us from the animals, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I texted him. They said he had a good run. I did you did, you did enough. you put
0: any heavy, passive aggressive punctuation in there, like a period at the end of a text? Is that heavy? To me, it is. I don't know why. Maybe I'm the only one. But whenever someone t- like like punctuates a text correctly, it ends it with a period. I think they're definitely mad at me. I appreciate it.
1: I think they're going they're going out of the way, you know. But but I can see uh, text messaging itself is weird because you're removing two of the biggest components of human communication, which is intonation and body language. So it's very easy to misread, but we don't have to worry about that because odds are, uh, one way or another, no matter where we go, no matter where we fly, the Quister will run into us again
0: soon, won't he? He sure will. So, you know, thanks to him for that, I suppose. And happy birthday. Huge thanks to Max Williams, Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Christopher Haciotis here in spirit. Eve's Jeff Coates doing great things out there in the podcast world. Check out J.L, the podcast, a show which she is very hands-on with as an executive producer.
1: And the last shout-out I'd like to give today is to... The amazing flight crews, the pilots, the attendants, the people on the ground, getting us into the sky. Especially flight attendants, they have to put up with so much. If you're on a flight soon, uh, folks, please just give those people some slack. They're they're
0: working hard in crazy circumstances. Totally. And uh, don't don't die on the hill of, of wearing the mask on the flight. You know, it's not about you. Just just do the thing. It's not going to be forever. It's uncomfortable for everyone, but uh, yeah. Bring them snacks. Just that obsessed. too. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The following is a high-five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome
2: to- Today, yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So, that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1200 games. Yeah! So,
0: yes or no on the apple pie?
2: Woo! I won again!
0: I'll take that as a yes. Drive around.
2: Have you had your high five moment today? Only at High fivecasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited. Play responsibly conditioned supply. See website for details.
0: High Five, high five Casino! casino.